everyone. Thank you for coming out to the Sheila Rose's first talk for the semester. Um, I just want to quickly, for those of you who may not go to Sheila Rose's or know much about it, just want to give, tell you once again what, what it's all about. So basically every, every Saturday morning uh, after the 7.30 mass, bright and early after a late Friday night, um, we go out, we, we go out, we, well we meet after mass in the, at the, in the commons, uh, the St. Lawrence Commons um, Square and then go out to Washington's abortion clinic, which is basically a few blocks away down from the, the White House. And we go in and, and pray the four mysteries of the rosary and a few other prayers. Um, and then while a couple of us do sidewalk counseling. So, um, <clears throat> so it's also the or oldest organization on campus. So um, once again, so if any of you, I'd just like to pitch that in, if any of you have free Saturday mornings I mean, I'm not saying you should go every Saturday, but just try to, if you can make that extra effort, that'd be awesome. Um, okay, so so tonight we're going to, we have a, it's my privilege to, to introduce to you um, <clears throat> the old Shield leader, uh, leader of Shield of Roses. Um, I don't know if, how many of you, I guess freshmen wouldn't know Paul Wilson, but um, before Paul Wilson, uh, Andrew Bodo led Shield of Roses for, for a year or two. Uh, so we graduated in uh, in uh, 07, before the senior class, just the, right before the senior class. Now, um, he wrote his thesis on on the he, he double majored in uh, history and and pol political science, writing his thesis on the pro the history of the pro life movement and applying the the culture of life to historical con to historical um, historical studies. Thank you. Um, he's a recent grad of Ave Maria Law School, and now he and he um, passed. He, he's Member of the Virginia Bar, and he has a practice in is it Fredericks, Fredericks. Fredericksburg, Virginia. So, and he's going to talk to us right now about understanding the culture of life. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Andrew. Thank you. If you don't mind, I'm going to move the podium. It tends to get in the way of my pacing. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here tonight. Um, Speaking on behalf of Shield of Roses, it's, it's easy to forget during your time here at Christendom how much of your education actually comes outside of the classroom. And looking back at, at my four years here at Christendom, I, many of the most important lessons that I learned came through my work with Shield of Roses. So if you haven't taken the opportunity, like John said, to get involved in Shield, I really encourage you to do so. I mean, it can be a really great and valuable experience. So tonight, I'm here to discuss the culture of life concept. I think that many people understand the culture of life. To be a society that rejects abortion and euthanasia and all the other evils the pro-life movement opposes. But there's really a depth of meaning in this term that is often overlooked. Um, how many here have seen the movie Inception? Good, good, good. Well, for those of you that haven't seen the movie, the plot of the movie centers on a team that has to surreptitiously plant an idea in somebody's mind. So you see them take this, this rather complex idea and, and break it down into its simpler parts. Um, they, they, they look for the framework and the language they can use so that when they plant this idea in the person's mind, it'll grow organically and change the person from within. The reason I bring this up is because I think we can understand the culture of life language, in a sense, to be John Paul II's attempt at mass inception. His attempt at, at communicating an idea to the world in a way that it will you know, be planted and grow and change the world in time as the world comes to understand what that idea means. So tonight's project is really to, to try to explore this culture of life concept as John Paul II sought to try to see what that means if it comes to its full fruition. And in order to do that, we sort of have to reverse engineer John Paul II's process. He went from the complex idea down to the simple terms, culture and life. We have to go the other way. We have to take those simple terms. We have to understand what they mean, each in their own right. And then we can put them together to see what happens. So that's basically going to be the, the, the roadmap for tonight's talk. We're going to talk about culture, and then we're going to talk about life, and then we'll put them together, okay? So on the first point, um, discussing culture, 
this is really one of the most complex areas of the culture of life concept. In 1952, there was a book published that identified 164 different definitions for the term culture. 164. Is it any wonder that we, we really don't have a good conception of what we mean by the term in all of the different ways that we use it? I mean, really, these, these definitions sort of blend together at the edges. So in order to, to understand what this term means, we sort of have to, to, to piece out both what it means in this context and what it doesn't mean. We have to you know, try to understand what we mean when we use that term. And the easiest way to do this is to explore the, the history and the development of the term culture. Once we do that, we can then look at the, the causes of culture, what gives rise to culture, and that's, that's really ultimately where we have to get, what it is that gives rise to culture. But first, with respect to the various meanings and, and identifying those different meanings, um, culture in its oldest sense is a term that related to the tending of a plant's natural growth. It was the basis for the terms agriculture and horticulture, culturing a plant. Now, by analogy, this idea of moving something towards its, towards its fullest perfection was then applied to the process of human education, culturing the mind. Now, as the social sciences developed in the mid to late 19th century, they took this idea of intellectual development and they began to apply it more broadly. They used the term a little more loosely. So they, they looked at culture as intellectual development, and they started describing culture as the general state of intellectual development in a society. The general state of intellectual development in a society. So that they moved from talking about the individual up to talking about society. And they moved from the process of education up to talking about the effects of education, you know, the, that general state of development. But as they're talking about this general state of development, they start identifying specific uh, um, marks of a highly developed society. Things like art and literature and music. And in a sense, these, these marks of a highly developed society then become the very meaning of culture themselves. So we talk about how Boston has more culture than Front Royal. Um, and what we're really getting at is that um, is really the arts and uh, the architecture and all those things, all those facets of Boston that are not present in Front Royal, that those high arts. Um, but then the, this idea of marks of a highly developed society was applied back to the human person so that the person was considered cultured as long as they had a, a knowledge of arts and an appreciation of music and literature and architecture. So do you see how many different definitions we have already? Um, tending to a plant's natural growth, culturing the mind, the, pro the general state of development, um, the marks of a highly developed society, and the marks of a highly developed person. The, well, at the core of these terms, there's a common idea, though. There's the idea that culture is something inherently good. It's sort of like health. Culture is directed to human development. Culture is something that is implicitly good for the person. In other words, culture was a normative term. It implied, uh, it implied something good. But the social scientists, um, it was a very secular discipline. And so they didn't like this idea of human nature or human perfection. And they began to move away from that idea. And so rather than talking about marks of a highly developed society, they just started using the term culture to describe anything or any particular identifying features of, of a particular society. So all any of the customs, the practices, the social institutions, the beliefs, the understandings, all of these things fit within the new understanding of culture. The objective sense of the term. And this is primarily the way that we understand culture today. Culture as a whole social 
way of life, a shared common way of life in a society. And this is primarily how John Paul II understood the term, culture as a shared way of life. Now, in the beginning, this sense of the term culture was um, closely connected to the idea that um, culture was passed from generation to generation, but we've moved away from that in our society where things change so rapidly. But this is fundamentally the, the, um, the big picture meaning of the term for John Paul II, culture as a whole way of life. But even within that, that use of the term, there's, there's several distinctions, several different ways of using the term that we have to be aware of. So for instance, um, there's a small minority of social scientists and academics who still use the term normatively. They're okay with saying that culture is something, uh, um, is a social environment or a, um, or rather a, a social way of life. But it's a social way of life that is directed to the good, directed to human perfection. If the social way of life is not directed to human perfection, they won't call it a culture, they'll call it something else. Now, like I said, the vast majority of social scientists uses the term objectively. Any way of life, good or bad, is a culture. The reason I bring this up is because John Paul II and Benedict XVI actually use, it, use the term differently. John Paul II talks about a culture of life and a culture of death. He condemns the culture of death, but he still calls it a culture. He uses the term objectively. Benedict XVI, on the other hand, talks about the culture of life and an anti-culture, an anti-culture of death. He even goes so far as to suggest that this anti-culture of death is a social way of life that eventually destroys society and even itself by breaking down those human relationships that make up society. So, and, and this idea is, is very compatible with John Paul II's use of the term. They're just using slightly different language. So, the next distinction we have to be aware of is a little bit more difficult to grasp. But basically, when we move away from talking about culture purely as an abstract concept, and talking about particular cultures, this culture as opposed to that culture, um, we need some way of identifying this culture rather than that culture. And there's two ways we can do it. We can either identify the culture we're talking about by what the culture is, the attributes of the culture, or we can identify it by whose culture it is, the society who has that way of life. So for instance, if I talk about Catholic culture, most of you will understand what I'm saying is a, a social way of life that uh, um, is compatible with and promotes the practice of the Catholic faith. That's a what? That's an attribute of that way of life. On the other hand, if I talk about Christendom culture, most of you will understand it to be the, the shared common social way of life of the members of Christendom College. That's a who. The reason this distinction is important is because when I talk about a what, when I, when I identify as a, a culture as a what, I leave out the who. I'm not clarifying whose culture it is. In fact, the culture might not even exist. I can describe a culture without it actually existing. On the other hand, if I talk about whose culture it is, I leave out the what. Two people who are familiar with Christian College may have a very different idea of what that term means. They may have a very different idea of what Christian culture is because the what remains undefined. The attributes <coughs> remain undefined. So, which is the culture of life? Well, the of life is an attribute of culture. It makes the, the term culture a what. It's a, we're talking about what the culture is, not whose culture it is. Now, the last distinction we have to make in, in understanding this term culture, as John Paul II does, is not so much a distinction as a, a clarification about the two coexisting elements of culture. You see, culture is sort of like the human person. 
It's both spirit and matter. It's spirit and matter working together. So, just for instance, um, if I talked about Christendom culture as being very pro-tradition, very much in love with tradition, ultimately what I'm talking about is an immaterial reality. I'm talking about the, the attitude we take toward tradition, towards the things passed on. That's, that attitude is a spiritual reality. But that attitude is manifested in, the, 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 in our actions. It's manifested in what we teach in class. It's manifested in the way we interact around campus and the way we celebrate the, the liturgy and the sacraments. So it's both the spirit and the matter. Without either of those, you don't have culture. Without matter, some way of communicating this, this idea, we can't share that idea. We can't develop a culture. And without an understanding, some, some com comprehension, all we have is mere habit. We don't have culture. We need both that spirit and that matter to have culture. And we, we need to look for both of those in order to really understand culture. Okay? Now, with those pieces in place, we can get to the point of actually understanding what it is that gives rise to culture. And this is really where John Paul II shines. Prior to John Paul II, the church had not really engaged this idea of culture. They tried to do it in Vatican II, and they sort of missed the mark. They, they didn't really grab the term culture in its full meaning. But John Paul II, with his background in, um, in communist Russia and uh, all of that, where, where he saw attempts to actually destroy culture, he came to a much better understanding of the term, and he was able to present that in his encyclicals like Fides et Ratio and Centesimus Annus and um, Slavorum Apostoli. And these encyclicals give us a very clear idea of what his idea of culture was, what those roots of culture are. And in order to understand that, we, we have to look at the human person. We have to, culture is really a, a, a byproduct of man's natural pursuit of happiness in the social environment. We have to understand what it is that motivates man in order to see how culture comes out of human interaction. So we all know that man is directed towards happiness, right? He is, um, that's ultimately what he pursues. But he pursues it through intermediary goods. And when we look at these intermediary goods, we can start see, classifying them. We can start seeing certain elements of human happiness emerge. So, for instance, um, one of these elements of human happiness is, um, is understanding. Mankind wants to, uh, he wants to know reality. He wants to know who he is. He wants to know who other people are. He wants to conceive of reality accurately. And this is an element of this happiness. We'll um, represent that by a head on a stick figure, okay? Understanding. Um, another element of human happiness is, um, is sensory delight. Mankind wants to see good things. He wants to taste and touch and smell good things. Um, and this is really what gives birth to the arts, the aesthetic experience. Um, so we can represent that. Drawing in the face. We'll even give him ears so you can hear. All right. Um, the next element of human happiness is what I call integrity, and I represent it by the backbone. Um, integrity is ba basically when we have an understanding of reality, we act according to that understanding, and in fact, we want to act according to an authentic understanding of reality. That's why. When we do something bad, we feel guilt. We recognize the difference between our actions and the good we understand. That's, that's the basis of integrity. Trying to pursue the good in an authentic way. Trying to act according to our understanding of reality. And act according to a proper understanding of reality. The, um, the next good we can look at is um, stability feet firmly planted on the ground. Stability is basically that, that desire 
to, to have these goods, not only for today, but for all time, without limit. Mankind wants to be certain about his enjoyment of the good. So, if I threaten to hit you in the face tomorrow at 3 o'clock, and you believe I, I was capable of it and that I could inflict great pain by doing it, that threat to your happiness tomorrow can destroy your happiness today. Because your happiness was threatened tomorrow, you've lost stability, you've lost that certainty in your enjoyment of the good. And that is why it destroys your happiness today. Now, I can pursue all of these goods on my own. I can, I can try to understand the world on my own. I can um, try to pursue sensory delight and integrity and stability all on my own. But what I find is I can pursue these things better and accomplish them more truly when I work in relationship with other people. When I have a good conversation with somebody, it leads me to better understand reality. When I see somebody accomplishing the good, it can inspire me to do the good. Integrity. When I find myself in times of need, I can turn to, the, to others to receive the goods I need to retain my stability. And if I find somebody who can draw better, we can get better sensory delight. So what this shows is that there's another element of human happiness, friendship or mutually beneficent relationships. This is such a crucial part of happiness. John Paul II talks about it in his Theology of the Body as overcoming your original solitude, your, your natural limitations as an individual through relationship with others. Relationships create something greater than the sum of their parts. And that is why friendship is an element of happiness. Now, behind all of these goods, there's the good of life, of, of being, of experiencing all of these elements of, you know, through corporeal existence. Okay? So these are really the, the elements of happiness. Now, what does all of this have to do with culture? Well, let's, let's, let's show you this. Um, let's take the Christian idea of God, okay? That's an understanding, right? But if it affects our actions. It shapes our stability because we come to understand that a little bit of suffering now and we can enjoy happiness for all time, before eternity. And we share it with others. We share our beliefs, our faith with others. When we do that, it affects their understanding, it affects their integrity, their stability, they share it with others. And on, and on. What happens when it runs into an artist? He takes this understanding and translates it into sensory delight and shares it with others. This is really where culture comes from. This, this understanding that is then acted out and shared with others. It creates a meeting of the minds as we try to, uh, try to pursue our happiness. Uh, a happiness that is um, said the same elements are shared by all. And so we're able to work together in the pursuit of this happiness. And ultimately, it creates that common, shared way of life. It creates culture. And in that way, culture is a natural byproduct of pursuing happiness in a society. Now, I'm going to um, pause there, answer any questions you have about culture. Let anybody you know, wake up a little bit before I move into the, my next section um, on life. So, any questions you have on culture? Anything I can answer? Somebody? Anybody? Okay, well, we can come back to them later. Um, the next step of the process is trying to understand life, the meaning of life. Um, it's easy for us to assume that John Paul II meant life in the same way that we mean life, right? Um, in the same way that we mean life when we speak about being pro-life. But what exactly do we mean? 
Well, I think that most of us would say, well, we mean something like uh, um, the right to corporeal existence before death, right? <laughs> Only that's, that's basically what we think of when we think of being pro-life. But I think John Paul II plays a politician's trick on us. He takes this term that, whose meaning we, we assume we know, and he changes it on us. Do you, do you want to see him do it? This is really good. Um, Evangelic Vitae, paragraph one. When he presents the heart of his redemptive mission, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In truth, he is referring to that new and eternal life which consists in communion with the Father, to which every person is freely called by the Son through the power of the sanctifying Spirit. It is precisely in this life that all aspects and stages of human life achieve their full significance. So what is John Paul II talking about here? He's not talking about corporeal existence before death. He's talking about something to do with eternal life. Paragraph 2. Man is called to a fullness of life that far exceeds the dimensions of his earthly existence because it consists in sharing the very life of God. The loftiness of this supernatural vocation reveals the greatness and the inestimable value of every human life, even in its temporal phase. Life in time, in fact, is the fundamental condition the initial stage and an integral part of the entire unified process of human existence. It is a process which, unexpectedly and undeservedly, is enlightened by the promise and renewed by the gift of divine life, which will reach its full realization in, in eternity. So what is John Paul II talking about here? Fundamentally, his idea of life is connected to the theology of grace to that understanding that, that mankind is to pursue happiness through love of God and love of neighbor. And that in pursuing happiness in this way, he prepares himself for the reception of God's free gift of grace. Grace is a participation in the very life of God. <coughs> a participation that means we, we are now in communion with God. This means that it's no longer us who are acting when we act in grace. It is God acting through us. And this is fundamentally the, the basis for John Paul II's idea, John Paul II's understanding of human dignity. If, if every person, while they are still alive, from the greatest saint to the lowliest sinner, if every person has the opportunity to share in that gift of divine life, to share in the life of the Almighty God, then life is a sacred reality. It's not to be attacked. It is to be respected. And this is, this is if you read Evangelion Vitae carefully, this is the basis of his argument against abortion. Because man is called to that fullness of life, a fullness of life that, that means communion with God in eternity, his life is to be held as a sacred reality. It's a thing he holds in trust in the pursuit of communion with God. It's not something we can attack. But ultimately, ultimately, this is not just about abortion and euthanasia. This is not just about life. Or in its, in its common sense. This is about grace. And grace requires pursuit of happiness through love of God and love of neighbor. It requires all of those human goods. It requires us to, to be honest. It requires us to, um, to act in appropriate ways through love of God and love of neighbor. So ultimately, that, that call to life is a call to love. It's a call to obedience to the commandments, which are the, the, the baselines of love. Now I have to ask, what would happen to the pro-life movement 
if it took this understanding of life? Well, for one thing, violence in the pro-life movement would be unthinkable. You can't love another and desire to, to hate, injure, or kill them. Those are radically inconsistent. You couldn't be a pro-lifer and desire to hurt another. <coughs> but even more fundamental than that, it would mean that when we go out to Planned Parenthood, we are not simply trying to save the life of that child. We are trying to save the soul of the mother. We are trying to save the soul of the doctors and the nurses in the abortion clinic. We're even trying to save the soul of those escorts that harass us. And that's why it's so important for any of you who've been out to S.H.I.E.L.D. that we pray for Phil. <laughs> I, think, I think that we, those, those prayers for Phil, he asked for them years ago. Um, that's quite a story. He, uh, he asked for them, and so we started praying for him. I think those prayers are going to be stored up and poured out for him Sometime before his death, I think we're going to see Phil in heaven. And it's important that we, we take those practices and continue them for the sake of understanding that our mission here is not simply to save lives. It's about saving souls. But there's something else that's, um, that's easy to overlook in this. It's, it's easy to talk about saving the lives of others, or saving the souls of others. But ultimately, like we said, loving God and loving neighbor changes us and prepares us to receive that gift of grace. It prepares us for communion with God. So what we could say is that life in time is a training ground where we are supposed to learn how to love so that we can share in the love of God in eternity. What better place to learn how to love than through working in the pro-life movement where we are called to, to love the unborn child we cannot see. We're called to, to, to love that woman who despises us. We're called to, to love the doctors and the, the, the nurses that are so steeped in evil. We're called to love those escorts who harass us and annoy us or ignore us. What better way, what better environment to learn how to love? It really calls us to charity, and it requires charity to be a pro-life worker. And that charity prepares us to receive that gift of life. It changes us as a person. It helps us learn how to love others so that we can receive that gift of life, that gift of God's life. This also reminds me of the, um, the great quote of Henry Hyde. Henry Hyde was a, um, a pro-life senator in the early days of the, um, the modern pro-life movement. He, uh, in one famous quote, he talked about the final judgment. He described the final judgment um, as a great moment of loneliness and fear. As we stand before the face of Almighty God, to be judged for all of our imperfections, all of our failures to love, we're not going to have any excuses, anyone to hide behind, anyone to, to stand there for us. We're going to be there before the all-just God to receive our judgment. But he says that for those of us in the pro-life movement, for those of us in the pro-life movement, there's going to be a choir of voices raised on our behalf. Voices that have never been heard in this world. They're going to be asking God to have mercy on us. Because we loved them. Think about that when times get tough in the pro-life movement. Think about what that will mean to have one of those voices of the innocent child speaking for us come that final judgment day. After all, 
with a child like that who has been who has been rejected by all we in the pro-life movement are the people who love that child if that child is marked by love they're going to bear that mark into eternity and they are going to to seek to return that love by helping us what a great calling that is to be in the pro-life movement now what then what then is the culture of life well i think you can start to put the pieces together it's a shared common way of life both spiritual and material that ultimately directs us to eternal life with god john paul ii describes the culture of life actually not in even and vitae he describes it best four years earlier in centesimusanus he describes the culture of life as a human environment as opposed to an ecological environment it's a human environment it comes out of human nature he says it's a human environment that respects man's natural endowed moral structure that vocation to love and in so doing it directs man to his ultimate perfection eternal life with god benedict the 16th describes the culture of life similarly when talking about the content of the culture of life he describes it as a great common yes to all of the things that are good for the human person it's it's yes to all of those things protected by the ten commandments it's a yes to to relationships with god a yes to proper relationships with parents and with others even even sexual relationships it's a yes to 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 life itself it's a yes to honesty and integrity and respect for the property of others it's a yes to all of those goods and it's a no to all of those things apart from those goods it's a no to uh to drugs it's a no to the um the flight from reality as he calls it it's a no to the the lack of solidarity in our modern society it's it's a no to abusive sexual relationships and it's a no to violence these are all necessary elements of the culture of life a culture of life is not simply one that rejects abortion and euthanasia it is one that rejects all of the things opposed to the human good but what then is the role of the pro-life movement in building the culture of life well we can speak about the pro-life movement in two different senses in a way we can speak about it more strictly more confined in terms of the anti-abortion movement or we could open our vision up and see the pro-life movement as one building this culture of life in the broad sense it would take the work of more than just the movement itself to it take the work of of business it would take the work of government and politics it would take the work of all different professionals to build this this way of life that contributes to the human good the way of life that directs man to eternal life but even in its narrow sense even in the sense of the pro-life movement opposing abortion and euthanasia it has a specific vocation it has a specific charism within the pro-life movement as in the broad sense it is called to witness to the fact that there is a culture of death the most obvious and plain mark of a culture of death are the attacks on human life and so that pro-life movement the core of the pro-life movement is there in order to to witness that this is wrong in an age that seems to have forgotten that that would be the charism that should be the goal that drives us a goal that drives us out of love out of pursuit of the good of others but ultimately it is connected to this bigger picture this picture of a society that that ultimately directs us all to god thank you so much for your attention if you have any questions um i'll be glad to answer them thank you for shield of roses too for uh for hosting this event um i, I really appreciate it so.
please, please. I just have a quick question yeah. first. Um, what, what would be some practical ways of that you would recommend? I mean, you mentioned like you know praying, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, there's some other practical ways of like engaging people of the you know the culture of that are that are that are you know immersed in the culture of death. I mean, just people that are you know I mean just just um, afflicted with that. Well, it depends on um, you know there, there's there's tremendous work. There's a lot of work for all of us to do. Um, and it, we have to pursue it in all of the different avenues. Any, whatever course of life we find ourselves in, we have to keep in mind this, this vision of the culture of life in order to be able to, um, to shape our actions around it. Ultimately, it requires us not to simply have it as an intellectual idea, but to be the person who can build the culture of life. It requires a change in us, and once we, once we change our attitude, change who we are, that will help us to see the opportunities to create the culture of life. Now, um, in terms of the uh, uh, work of the pro-life movement itself, you know, um, the, the weekly prayer vigils and all of that, um, it's always important to look for those opportunities to, to share that, um, the gospel of life, that, that good news of life. But those are the, the, the opportunities are um, not always obvious. I heard a, I remember one great story from um, Chrissy Walsh, who was uh, um, the head of the counselors during my time here at Christendom, um, where she she saw the opportunity to um, change the heart of one of the escorts. Um, the escorts started asking her, "Well, those, those pictures, you know, the the aborted baby pictures that you I saw in the pamphlets, you know, those aren't real." And so rather than arguing with, with him, she saw the opportunity to, um, well, what she did is she said, well, are you, are you sure? Are you sure they're not real? Can you take these inside and ask the abortionist just to make sure? I don't want to be giving out bad information. If these are wrong, I don't want to be giving them out. That escort never came back. He never came back to escort again. Though it's just... It requires being open to those little opportunities, and it, it really does require um, being connected to the Holy Spirit. You know, it does require that gift of grace to be able to see and take those opportunities when they come up. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, then what you're saying is actually what we should really center on as far as the spiritual-like <clears throat> movement, instead of this. Maybe the what of it would be, what is it about? Well, it's we're fighting abortion. Maybe that would be the what. But the who of it would be the love of it, would be that we change ourselves because we love, and we go there out of love, and because we love the babies, and because we want to save the souls of the babies, mm -hmm. than, and the mothers, and that. So that would be, so this, the culture of life would then be more of a who, than, because the way you described it, a who and a what. Um, is it both, or is it like... Well, I mean, in discussing that who and what, that was uh, particularly the way we, we identify cultures. But you are getting to something that, that is important. Um, you know, there, there's a growing awareness that to be successful in business or whatnot, um, you, have to, you have to be in tune with that ultimate goal. And I think that when the pro-life movement um, says that our goal is to end abortion, it's selling itself short. If we set our goal higher, I mean, ending abortion is one thing, but if that is our goal, then that opens up, you know, things like violence. If violence becomes a, a means we can use, that may be a, a way to end abortion, but it's not the way we, we can accept. Why isn't it? Because it's contrary to that ultimate goal, that goal of loving others. And so if we see the pro-life movement as a particular way to love others. Uh, loving others by witnessing to that gift of life, I think we will be better served. I think we will, will come to a fuller understanding of what our vocation is as pro-lifers. So yes, the ultimate goal is loving others and, and working for their salvation. The particular charism or way that we do it is by witnessing to the uh, witnessing concerning the tragedy of abortion. 
Other questions? Anybody? Yes? Do you have any reading you would recommend besides um, Evangelium Vitae, Centesimus Luzanus? Um, if you're looking at trying to understand this idea more completely, the best, uh, um, there's really not many secondary sources out there that I've seen that really explore this idea of culture life authentically. You know, um, there's a lot that, uh, that miss the point, I think. Um, so the best way to start is Evangelium Vitae. The introduction is, is very important, like, like I read today. The second chapter is crucial to seeing that vision of life. Um, Evangelium Vitae gives you the understanding of life. To get the understanding of culture, you have to look to, towards those other encyclicals I mentioned. Um, Fides Oratio provides an explanation of how culture, um, how the pursuit of, of knowledge, that understanding we were talking about, develops into culture. Um, Sintessi Musanis has those good points talking specifically about the culture of life. And the other one is Slavorum Apostoli, which is one of his older encyclicals about Cyril and, Cyril and Methodius. Um, and in this encyclical, he really takes the, the, the concept of culture and discusses it within that context of the saints' work. These were the, the saints that went to the Slavic nations um, in order to convert them. And he, he talks, he really praises them for not trying to replace the Slavic culture with a uh, Byzantine culture but actually trying to use that culture and work for the good within that culture. So that's, that's also another crucial one to, to really understand the vision of culture. Um, can I ask you a question sure. about Phil? Sure. Um, when he claps, when we say the stuff is for Phil, is that like mocking or is it gratitude? Well, you may not realize this, but I was talking, I, I, I don't know, do, uh, um, do you know Eva? Um, she is, uh, uh, she's out there weekly, or pretty much weekly. Um, uh, she and her family come out from Fredericksburg. Um, and uh, she says that when Christendom is not there, Phil's not there. Christendom, or Phil has developed a unique relationship with Christendom. He comes out, he's, he's, he's motivated, you know, by Christendom. He, he's, he's inspired or shaped by Christendom. I think when he claps, or I, I think he, he's a very complex personality, but ultimately I think that um, I think that he doesn't have any heart in what he's doing. I don't think he's. Uh, I think he's doing it out of habit, and um, I think that that relationship with Christendom is helping him to um, to see some good that he would not otherwise see. Um, so despite all of his actions, I, um, I still have a lot of hope for Phil. I think Andrew, maybe one of you guys should ask him, because he's, he's out there on the walk sometimes. I never thought about that, just to ask him why he claps. He might want us to ask him. Well, um, I, he, the other day when we played through the Saturday before the march, um, there were a lot of people at the Planned Parenthood, and so there were a lot of different prayers going on and stuff. And so he wasn't really able to hear our group whenever our group um, prayed his second of the rosary. And he came over to me and he was like really disappointed and he wanted to know why we didn't pray his second of the rosary that day. And um, when we were gone over Christmas break, I, you know, I asked him how he'd been doing uh, over break and he said it was sad because there hadn't been anybody to pray for him. So I think he really so, so actually was say it that day yeah. as soon as we got back, or on the way back. I think he genuinely does appreciate it. Yeah, in, in this strange, interesting, yeah. unorthodox. <laughs> 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 oh, yes. Uh, the, the question before before the Phil question actually kind of led into my question of um, how how do you determine we were talking we were talking about Cyril and Methodius and then going to this mm -hmm. how do you determine I'm not sure which definition of culture you would use for this question. How much you try to be a part of the culture. For example, by culture, I, it could be something like the culture that says you wear a tie like you are wearing rather than a big fluffy lace thing or nothing at all around your neck. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you like how do you determine when to like how much to be a part of 
culture or to try and change it? Well, I think the best way to understand this is to remember that spiritual and material element to culture. Um, behind every action, even as simple as wearing a tie, there are certain principles. Um, there are certain principles that we, we act on, and they may be remote from this particular action. But ultimately, those, those principles are what lead us to, to follow that action. Um, and so what is crucial is understanding, seeing the actions and understanding what are the principles that guide them. The good principles, the way that, you know, the good of those actions should be affirmed and the bad rooted out or changed or converted in some way. So it really does require, you know, we have the, the story of Van uh, um, Hildebrand, I think it was, chopping down the oak tree. Because that oak tree for them represented the deity. And so that part of it had to be either attacked or converted because it was an evil part of their culture. On the other hand, there were a lot of, you know, as, as John Paul II explains in, um, in this encyclical, there were a lot of good parts of every culture. You know, culture is inherently directed towards truth. And so there's a lot of good in every culture, and those good elements ought to be preserved. They, they, John Paul um, calls them a patrimony, uh, an inheritance from prior generations directed to the good. He really praises and, um, and encourages authentic cultural diversity. He doesn't want a universal or single culture. He wants to see different expressions or different modes of expressing that good of the human person. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of something in, in culture that wasn't morally evil or immoral or not, would you say then to leave it alone rather than try and change it? Because therefore it's probably good, it probably stands for something. <coughs> Well, it's important to try to figure out what it means, and if it is something good, use it and improve it. Um, I mean, it really, uh, uh, Slavorin Apostoli talks, really praises um, Cyril Methodius particularly, because one of the big questions at the time was whether, um, whether the Mass should be said in languages other than Greek and Latin. Cyril, Cyril Methodius took the opinion that it should. It should be translated into the, uh, the language of the native language. Um, he, uh, in fact, since the Slavic people didn't have a written alph alphabet, they created an alphabet for the Slavic language so that they could translate the Bible uh, and the, 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 the liturgy into the Slavic tongue. There's a great section, one of my... One of my um, one of the amusing quotes that John Paul II puts into, uh, puts into the encyclical is basically one of, I think it's Methodius' defense of, um, of translating it and using the, the native language. And he, um, he makes some reference to, uh, what, don't you think that God can, uh, can hear us in a language other than Greek and Latin? Don't you? And then he proceeds to, to enunciate all of the other you know, times that the church has used native languages. Um, and he, he, yeah, it just ridicules the, the, the understanding that we should you know, dispense with authentic cultural elements simply because they're not Greek or Latin. Andy, what would you say for, particularly for Shield of Rosa, mm -hmm. when we're trying to repeat people to come, or encourage people to come on Saturday mornings, what would you say to the people that use the excuse a lot of, it's so depressing? And they're not trying to get out of it, then you actually mean it. Well, and, you know, how would you answer that? Because a lot of these people, they're not trying to get off the hook. They're just like, I can't go, it's too much. Well, I, I think there are some people for whom it can be too much. Um, you know, in order to be a pro life worker, you know, to, especially a counselor, you have to be able to, uh, to, uh, um, to control those, those real tough emotions. And, you know, we have to be careful as, as pro-life workers not to get too hardened to the reality that's going on. But we need to be hardened enough to be able to, to accomplish that task of witnessing to life. Um, <clears throat> if, if that's the case, you know, one, one approach to take with that sort of situation 
is to just inquire whether it's a bad thing to be depressed about it. You know, that depression is a mark that they are, they are recognizing the evil there. It's a mark of change in who they are. It's, it's, it's a realization of the reality, and that realization is essential to being able to, to witness to what it is. You know, suffering that, that depression can make those prayers that you say more meaningful, more valuable, more helpful to the movement. And my, my, my favorite excuse, personally, my favorite excuse is that... Um, <laughs> Uh, um, I have to study. <laughs> uh, the way I see it, um, when it comes down to that test, or even writing the paper, um, you're all relying an awful lot on the Holy Spirit to, to, to be able to re remember everything you studied and get the right idea at the right time. I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to let you down when you went to S.H.I.E.L.D. instead of writing your paper. Um, and there's actually been many times where, you know, Went to S.H.I.E.L.D. when I should have been writing the paper, came back and suddenly realized that my paper was entirely wrong, I need to redo it all, and I did it. And it, I mean, I think that it's important to, to be active um, in order to benefit your education. Um, Sorry, just a word. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, how about for, I think the biggest thing people fall and do, especially at a good Catholic college, is kind of that. Yes, I'm pro-life, but I don't need to go to the abortion bill because I'm already pro It's kind of that complete, almost complacency of like, you know, I I know abortion's wrong, and but I don't need to go to Shield the Roses in the morning, or, you know, even if it's not every week or at all. It's like, I think a lot of, that's kind of a problem we have. How, mm -hmm. do, you, how do you, like, what advice would you give kind of stirring people out of that, of that I'm pro-life, but I don't have to do anything about it? Yeah, the... Um it really takes challenging the people to say, what does it mean to be pro-life? If it's, you know, is it just an attitude? Uh, um, love is not an attitude; it's it's an action. Um, and if you if you are pro-life, it requires you to take action. I mean, I remember during my time at Christendom, I was always curious that the you know the people moving on to law school that would say that you know we I'm I want to be the person that overturns Roe v. Wade. But they weren't the person going out to shield. You know, that that, that may be a great good to to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, but you're not going to get there until you learn how to do this. You know, it really takes that learning how to love others. You know, through that that action on the ground, that that those those long hours, those prayers, in order to be the person who's going to accomplish this other goods. Being pro-life in name is easy. But to really be pro-life, to be a pro-life person through and through, demands action. Um, what, you, what you might consider is um, take a look at the first part of um, the last chapter of Evangelion Vitae. Um, it really talks about how we have to be a people of life and for life. And that because we've been given the gift of knowing the truth about life, it is our obligation to share it with others. It's not simply a um, one way of doing it. It's our obligation to share it with others. Yes? Is that one little uh, end of that? Um, we just, um, and it has to do with your Christy Walsh story. Mm -hmm. Hello. Is that any Christy? Um, I know. Uh, we have a book that's called Unplanned. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. Uh, it's just come to the library. Um, it is about a woman who was a director of an abortion clinic, and she was won over by love, mm -hmm. by the love of the people that came, the pro-life people that came to the abortion clinic. And um, she's not the first one I heard of that. There, well, I think this one was shut down on abortion clinic over in Falls Church. Well, actually, um, uh, Roe of Roe v. Wade, Norman McGarvey. Yeah. A uh, very similar story. She was. Um, she was working in a uh, um, a Planned Parenthood facilities, basically, when a pro-life group moved next door. Um, one of the main managers of the pro-life group, a woman, had a young daughter who got to know Norma um, 
Roe from Roe v. Wade. Um, and we even, even got to the point where she would sit in Norman McCorvey's office at the Planned Parenthood, you know, playing and all that. And that relationship with this little girl and with her mother was what ultimately pulled Norman McCorvey out of the pro, uh, out of the pro-choice movement. It's uh, it's really an incredible story. Maybe if you have any other questions, you can just uh, ask Andy personally. But um, thanks, thank you everybody for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah.